Welcome to the Global Sport Matters Podcast. This is the second part of our two-part series, The Lived Experience of a Transgender Athlete. Our guest host and producer is Karen Gibbon. If you have not done so already, please do listen to part one for an insightful story about a transgender athlete. In part two, Karen sits down with Ashlyn Johnson, founder of the Inclusion Playbook, an organization transforming communities in and through sport, and Chelsea Wolf, BMX rider and first trans athlete to go to the Olympics with Team USA. That conversation explores what trans inclusion in sports looks like, how sports go about writing and enforcing inclusion policies, and what fans can do to support trans athletes during this time. And now, here's part two of the lived experience of a transgender athlete. I'm going to start with just a couple of quick notes. I spoke with Chelsea Wolfe and Ashlyn Johnson last weekend, days after Chelsea had been announced as an alternate for Team USA at the Tokyo Olympics. A couple of days later, Fox News reported that Chelsea had written a Facebook post, which has since been deleted, saying, quote, My goal is to win the Olympics so I can burn a U.S. flag on the podium. This is what they focus on during a pandemic, hurting trans children. The post was written in March 2020 in response to an article about the Trump administration's support of legislation that would ban trans girls from sports. This week, Chelsea told Fox News, quote, Anyone who thinks I don't care about the United States is sorely mistaken. One of the reasons why I work so hard to represent the United States in international competition is to show the world that this country has morals and values, that it's not all of the bad things that we're known for. Also this week, weightlifter Lauren Hubbard was named to New Zealand's Olympic team. As Chelsea is an alternate for Team USA, Lauren is the first transgender woman to be added to the competition schedule for the Tokyo Games. And with that out of the way, let's get to the conversation. So Chelsea, I want to start with you. I know that going to the Games has been a goal of yours for a long time. So first, congratulations. And second, how does it feel? Thank you so much. And uh, honestly, it's, it feels surreal. Like it's, it's kind of setting in slowly, like taking some time to just register that like, this is actually happening. My entire life for the past five years has been working for this goal. Like every decision I've made leading up to now has been to get to this point and to, to have it like come together and get the alternate spot is just it's not something that I've figured out a way to describe in words yet, and I don't know if I'll be able to figure out a way to explain it. Tell me about sort of how you got here, because at the very beginning, you weren't really sure there was a place for you in your sport, right? Yeah, so I like I got started in BMX racing when I was a little kid, grew up with that, and then in my like early teen years, some of my racing friends had gotten into freestyle. It looked fun. So around my 15th birthday, I got into freestyle and shortly into discovering freestyle, I started to see like some professional women riders who were just like so cool and just like any other kid, like I wanted to be just like them. But like I um unfortunately did not think at the time that I would be welcome to be a professional woman rider as a trans girl. Yeah, I just didn't really see that future for myself. And then it kind of just started happening over the years. Like I was 
I was still riding and having fun and enjoying myself. And I just started meeting people who got me to start coming out of my shell a bit more. And then in 2016, the IOC announced that BMX freestyle would be added to the games, which um, would mean that the UCI would be involved in regulating the competitions leading up to the games. And I knew that the UCI had policies for trans athletes. So at that point, it kind of became possible for me to compete for the first time. So really from that moment on, like my life just changed to be like, I am making this dream a reality and it's been a long road, but here we are. (laughs) I want to talk about that a little more, the idea that this was really your first opportunity to compete. I've heard you say that you hadn't always dreamed of being an Olympian, but the Olympics was like the only door open to you. So explain that to me. Yeah, I mean, like with BMX freestyle, there's been a lot of issue with just having opportunities for women in general, like let alone being a trans woman, like even cis women have not historically had many opportunities in the sport. Many competitions wouldn't let us compete at all. The ones that did would often not have a class for us. So they would just stick us against the dudes. And like, you know, I've gone that route a few times and it's, it's fun and all, but like at the same time, it's, it's hard to go up against some of these guys. So it really changed things when the IOC got involved and the UCI got involved because now we had the regulations from the top saying that if you want to be an Olympic sport, you have to have equal opportunities for women. And then there's also the regulations that allow for trans athletes to participate as well. So it kind of changed the entire sport for all of us, like not just me to where we went from just trying to like make do and have fun riding our bikes to like all of a sudden we all have actual opportunities for professional careers in front of us. Ashlyn, I'm hoping you can tell me this story of how you got involved in this line of work because it starts with something I didn't even know was legal in this country. Yeah, so I, a long, long time ago, um, I was working in Georgia and I was out, and but my boss didn't know that I was gay. And uh, when she found out I was gay, she asked me to resign. And I also didn't know it was legal to be um, fired because of your sexual orientation. And so I didn't resign and I ended up being fired. I went to several um, legal organizations uh, to talk about what happened because I was in the city of Atlanta. So the city of Atlanta had a um, an ordinance to protect LGBT people from employment discrimination. And so um, I ended up being a part of the ACLU's test case um, to show that that particular law had no teeth. I knew I wasn't going to win, but that experience uh, made me realize that if I wanted to affect change, um, one, I needed to know what my rights were. Um, and two, I felt like that one of the best ways to uh, affect change was through the legal system. So I ended up going to law school. So another little fact about me is a long, longer time ago, I played college basketball. Uh, so I was a division one athlete at Furman University. Um, so I played sports my whole life and I loved it. Uh, and now I run my own sports impact consultancy where we work with community leaders to transform their communities in and through sports. Chelsea, I want to go back to you for a minute. I've heard you talk about your frustration over organizations that like simply don't have a policy or that can't or won't tell you whether you're allowed to participate. Tell me about some of those frustrations. What have you had to go through to figure out if you're allowed in? 
Oh, I mean, I've definitely had to, uh, like I've showed up at events before, gotten there and just been told like, oh no, you can't compete, which is a really crappy feeling. (laughs) And then the other problem is a lot of the rules that are in place are not very well explained and every organization has their own rules. Um, So trying to figure out what process, like the IOC wants you to do, the UCI wants you to do, if you're in another sport, like that sports international federation, what they want you to do on top of what the World Anti-Doping Agency wants you to do. It's a whole cluster and there is no just simple guide that helps guide you through like how to do this. Like there's no, you just go to the website, sign up for your license, start competing. It's like, honestly, I don't know how I managed to figure it out, but it took a long time and just so much effort to even sort through just the mountain of information out there about what all of these different organizations even want you to do to be eligible to compete. And of course, then they keep changing it and moving the goalposts on us. Ashland, how common is this for trans athletes to not really have a clear path to inclusion? Uh, Unfortunately, it's extremely common um, for trans athletes to not know how they can participate or if they can't participate. Um, When it comes to uh, trans athletes who are competing K through 12, it's a patchwork among the states uh, with which states allow you to participate, which states ban you from participating, um, and which states uh, require certain hoops to jump through. So even K through 12, you see that from a very early age, trans athletes don't even know what they have to do to participate. That same confusion goes on through collegiate and professional. Most people know that the NCAA has a trans participation policy, but what they don't know is that that only applies to NCAA championships. What that means is that every school gets to set their own standards for trans participation. Now imagine how confusing that's gonna be for a young athlete wanting to compete in college. Um, And the same is true when it comes to um, professional play. USOPC does not have a trans participation policy. Uh, And by USOPC, I mean the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. What that means is it's up to every national governing body of a sport to determine what their trans participation policy is. So one of the people I spoke with for last week's episode was Sid Ziegler. He's the founder of OutSports. And one thing that one of the points that he likes to make is that reasonable people can disagree on the specifics of inclusion policies. But one of the big problems is that the two sides are so far apart. On the one hand, you have people who think that trans girls and women should be able to, with no medical transition whatsoever, compete in girls sports. And then you have the complete opposite side of people who say that they shouldn't be able to compete under any circumstance whatsoever, which is reflected in some of the laws passed most recently in Florida. And unfortunately, the vast majority of trans athletes who are just looking to participate in sports and make friends and build their self-confidence are caught between two sides that can't agree on anything. Ashland, what can be done to bridge this gap? Because it's those athletes stuck in the middle that are really being hurt here, right? Yeah, um, I would have to say I think it is a more nuanced discussion than two polarized sides. You're seeing that more because it's become more of a political conversation. So if you take it into the sports arena, you do see a little more nuance when it comes to these conversations, especially when it, again, it's K through 12 versus collegiate versus professional. What I've seen with most sports organizations is they want to find an avenue for trans athletes to compete. 
and participate, but they want to do it with the values of like being fair and inclusive. Um, I think one way that we can bridge this gap is just having more people learn about what it means to be transgender in general. People don't know what that looks like. They don't know what transition means. They don't understand medical transitions from social transitions. We need more information on the science of if there is some type of competitive uh, advantage right now, we're just going off the gender stereotypes and they need to understand the benefits of sports to trans athletes. When you have sports organizations understanding that, they're really more inclined to have participation policies that are inclusive. So, Chelsea, how would you bridge that gap between those who say there should be no restrictions and those who say that trans athletes should not be allowed to compete at all? Honestly, it's it's hard to say because, like, I uh, I do have a bachelor's degree in political science and a lot of my studies were in gender studies and with social inequity. But unfortunately, knowing a lot about those subjects doesn't really give me, like, the golden like ideas of how to like fix this massive issue that we seem to be facing. Like my specialty these days is I just drive tiny bicycles and it just happens to make a lot of people mad. So I unfortunately have to know a lot about politics as well. I do feel like it would help though, if the people in the opposition, and here's the thing is like, I'm just going to recommend an idea for the people in the opposition. Cause like, I feel like I'm doing everything I can, but like to just, see us as people because I think the most common thing that I see that is so disturbing is people are like oh like you took this opportunity from a cis woman and it's like well if you are going to ban all of us from sports completely aren't you taking all of our opportunities from us at once like so you're so concerned about your opportunities but you're completely disregarding the fact that we deserve opportunities as well Um, So it's almost like they don't even see us as deserving of equal human rights. And I think that would be a solid first step is realize that like, we do deserve equal human rights. And you may not agree with us on what that means. But at the very least, you can start acknowledging that we deserve opportunities as well, instead of just, you know, saying, you know, separate but equal, because we know how that works out. (laughs) We do. So so you went right to where I was going to go, which was bioethicist Katrina Carcasis. And she says that one of the problematic things is people will say, oh, I support trans youth and trans rights. But I think we just need to carve out this little space for sports because sports is different. And my thinking about that is, no, actually, we don't make carve outs for human rights and civil rights. That's just not how that works. They're kind of not on the negotiable table. So to me, it's no different than saying, I probably would get a lot of pushback for this. I've never said it, but it's no different than saying, well, trans people, you can't marry, you can't vote, you can't drive, because those are the rights that are given to all people and a mode of civic participation that allows for sort of full flourishing for humans. And that I think is important. So tell me, why is sports something that should be protected alongside all of the other rights that we protect? I mean, like sport is such a formative thing for someone to be able to participate in and see a future for themselves. It is such a powerful tool for just learning how to be a human and how to work hard, set goals, and just try to achieve something that's bigger than yourself. 
It also teaches you how to lose gracefully and then win, but not be a bad sport about it. There are just so many powerful and important life lessons that come along with having the opportunity to participate in sport that you can't take that away from an entire class of people and try to say that you're not doing it because you're a bigot. Ashland, what do we risk for health and well-being if we deny trans athletes access to sports? Let me go over a few key stats to help contextualize this. Only 14% of trans boys participate in sports and only 12% of trans girls participate in sports. Number significantly low. The national average is 60 of participation. So you have a significantly lower rate of trans athletes participating in sports. 62% of trans students uh, say that their gender identity is the reason they don't play sports outside of gym. And then 83% of trans athletes aren't even out to their coaches. So what we know about participation in sports is uh, students usually have better grades, better self-esteem, they have better mental health outcomes, better physical health outcomes. And these benefits last well beyond the times that they are playing sport. What we know about trans uh, students, especially is they do have higher rates of, um, they're at higher risk of self-harm because of all the discrimination that they face. Um, And just having one adult in their life that's accepting decreases that percentage of self-harm by 40%. So just having a coach that's accepting of a trans athlete is something that could be life-changing and life-saving. Chelsea, when you finally got the list of all the things you needed to do to qualify to compete in your sport, what did you make of the requirements? Does the list feel reasonable to you or is it kind of crazy? It depends on the organization. The UCI at this point is uh, it's not that difficult to satisfy the list, but I do think with proving that you satisfy the list, they have created their own shortcomings they have one person in the organization who is responsible for every single trans athlete in the entire world who wants to compete in cycling. So it took probably the entire year of COVID for us to even get an email response back from him. And it wasn't until USA Cycling was able to get in touch with like the head of the UCI to be like, hey, dude, are you going to like take care of this job of yours? And like, finally, we were able to get a response from this guy and like, get all of this proved. And that was with just a rule change. Like I had already been competing for years under the previous rules that they had in place. And then they just restructured it to now he's responsible for it. It's definitely like tough dealing with a lot of the extra pressure that people put on to trans athletes to make sure that we, uh, you know, we are actually our genders for some reason, they can't just trust us like they do with each other. Ashland, if I were to be personally in charge of a sporting event, which I'm not, I imagine I would struggle with this because it does not seem unreasonable to suggest that an adult professional athlete undergo some sort of medical transition, as is recommended by their doctor, not by me. At the same time, I really want athletes like Chelsea to feel seen and supported and not like she has to prove herself to me. So how do I find that path? Huh. A lot of it is questioning our notions of what gender means and who we're holding those standards, who we're holding to those standards. We don't test every athlete. We don't test cis women unless they don't 
adhere to white womanhood, Western notions of white womanhood. Um, so whenever you have an athlete of color who presents too masculine, that's when you hear, oh, we should test her. So if we think about who we want to test and why, um, I think that is very helpful in understanding, like maybe we are de dealing with some prejudices and stereotypes, because the reality is we don't know the baseline when it comes to levels of testosterone in people's bodies. And we don't know what the tipping point for an athletic advantage is either. And so that's why I still always tell people to err on the side of inclusion, because we know what discrimination is and we know what that looks like. Um, and that's not guesswork. So if you're running a sporting event and you want there to be fairness, you have to look at it on all levels and not just on gender identity. I want to go back to bioethicist Katrina Carcasis. She said something really interesting. She points out that the debate is being framed in a way that suggests that trans women are somehow a barrier for equity in sport. Here's Katrina. But the real inequity is not between, for example, trans women and cisgender women. In fact, the most marginalized are trans women and girls. The real inequity is between men and women in sport, right? And we have so many examples that have come to light in recent years around pay inequity, sponsorship inequity, even with March Madness, you know, gym inequity. But what this issue does is stop women from focusing on the real source of the inequity, which is not trans women, but policymakers, companies, those who do televised sport. Ashlyn, what do you make of that argument? Katrina, for starters, is brilliant. She's been making this point for a while, and uh, we're seeing it play out in politics in a whole new way this year. When states have trans-inclusive high school policies, the participation for girls, all girls, increases. So if this were really about protecting participation of women and girls, you would actually have more trans-inclusive policies. Um, what people need to start doing and what Katrina is hinting at here is we need to start listening to women. Uh, women athletics, especially the WNBA, uh, women's soccer, women's hockey. In the last two years, all three of those group of women have told people what they need when it comes to gender equity. They need more pay, they need better facilities, they need maternity leave. So we need to listen to what the women athletes are saying and not one of their requests has ever been to ban trans athletes from participating. That's kind of the thing is like, there is so much inequality present in sport and so many things that are holding back women's sports and women athletes and trans athletes are not one of those things. If anything, we are actually part of the movement and we are helping the cause. Most kids actually start out in co-ed sports. I know I did. Chelsea, how has your experience changed over the years? Yeah, I mean, like, it was nice that early on in my BMX freestyle riding, the competitions, like, they weren't gendered just because there weren't even enough women competing to be able to have our own class. So it did really just allow me to exist and be a BMX rider first and not stress over all that other stuff as a kid. Um, I do think, though, that it hasn't been as difficult as it could have been for me because I am fortunate in that I do fit within the binary gender classifications that are given to us as options. I do feel like that would be even more of a difficult thing to navigate for a non-binary athlete. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that brings us to a really important part of this conversation. Sports is such a gendered space. Ashlyn, where does that leave athletes who are non-binary? That is a very difficult question, which I'm still working, like thinking of ways of how to answer this. I think it leaves non-binary athletes in a very difficult space. The NCAA's policy is not based on gender. It's based on hormone usage, which can be a pathway forward. But it is very difficult even for policymakers to come up with the right policies because the way our brains work with sports is thinking of it as a gendered space. We're so far behind when it comes to addressing non-binary athletes. And I feel like that conversation, it should be happening alongside trans athletes, but it's going to happen maybe two to five years from now. But what that means is non-binary athletes too don't know if they can participate, when they can participate. And it's also gonna take a lot of education on what it means to be non-binary. The IOC regulations, from what I understand, when they have the portion of it where you have to sign a declaration stating that this is your gender, they actually included a provision in there that says this is your gender for purposes of sport. So for a non-binary athlete who feels most comfortable competing with women and is competitive best against women, they don't have to like sign a declaration misgendering themselves. They can say that for purposes of sport, I will compete with women. That said, the UCI changed how they worded that to where they just make you sign a declaration stating that you are a woman, which effectively, or a man, which effectively bans non-binary athletes from sports. The WNBA now has at least one non-binary player. Last summer, Laisha Clarendon started sort of quietly coming out. And I recently had the chance to interview Sue Bird for a project that has nothing to do with this. And she was making a point about the WNBA. And she said something along the lines of, we are a league of mostly women. And then she went on to say her point, right? Ashland, is this what inclusion looks like? Is it really just that simple and matter of fact? Yeah, the WNBA is killing it. They are killing it. They're leading the way in social justice. They've been doing it for a while. And to hear like mega stars like Sue Bird with the platform that she has make that particular comment, that is what inclusion looks like. And that's what allyship looks like, too. Chelsea, I know that you don't really love talking about people who have done or said terrible things to you. So I want to ask about the opposite. Mm-hmm. What have you experienced in your sport that has made you feel welcomed and supported? Honestly, just people being friendly and specifically people who stick up for trans athletes. There's a woman from France on the French team, Magalie Potier, who is actually currently working with the French government, like sports ministry or something, advocating on behalf of trans athletes. For one of my cis woman competitors to like be that invested with trans rights that she is doing the hard work of advocating for us in a way that really, really matters, like directly to the French sports ministry is such a huge show of allyship that I'm like really grateful for. Um, And on top of that, even just people who are, you know, friendly in general, like say congrats after I do well in a contest and truly believe that like I work hard for the things that I accomplish and you know, see a future where we all have an opportunity to compete and see what our best can be. Yeah. 
Ashland, when I spoke to Chris Mosier a few weeks ago, it was before Chelsea was named to Team USA. And he said that he was very proud that there would likely be a trans Olympian this year, but that he was also worried that that would somehow be weaponized against the community. Does that worry you? Yes, um, because right now, when politicians are making are trying to make a case that they need these laws to protect women's sports, we can point to the fact that like, just give us an example. And they keep using the same example over and over, even though, even in the Connecticut case, those trans girls lost too. Um, and so we feel like it's going to give them someone to point to for these already unfounded claims for like state legislation and legislation that even the high school associations are saying we can't enforce. Um, so yeah, just if they're actually making these claims when they have no examples whatsoever, or one example in a state that doesn't really match up to what they're saying, imagine the word, the concern is imagine what they might say because there's a trans athlete in the Olympics. Okay, so as a person who wants to support athletes like Chelsea at the Olympics, while all of this drama is going on, what do I do? Keep your eye on the ball. Um, Just know that a lot of this conversation, these conversations around trans women in sports are just, they're just side conversations to distract you from what's really going on in, in women's athletics. And so you just have to keep focusing on what women actually really need to protect and promote women's sports. And so if you keep that front and center, when you hear some of these side arguments that are saying that this is the end of women's sports, bring it back to what women have actually said they need to protect women's sports. Like always keep that conversation critical in your mind. And then it's easier to shut out the noise. Chelsea, do you worry about backlash as the Olympics approach? Oh, definitely. So that's kind of the thing is that with increased visibility comes increased vulnerability. And we've definitely seen that over the years as things have gotten better for us in terms of visibility of having like actors who are trans athletes, just public personas in general, politicians. And you would think things are getting better for the community. But at the same time, the rates of hate crimes and murders against the community are rising every single year. And particularly, this gets focused on to trans women of color. So that representation for the lucky few who are able to kind of create that representation isn't really translating into overall safety and a better, like, more welcoming world for everyone else. And I... uh, I am worried that that is a trend that is going to take a lot to fight against that. I don't know if we necessarily have a very solid plan of how to fight against it, because I mean, that that always seems to be how it goes is like the balance in the political equilibrium is like, as we make progress, the opposition is going to want to push back even harder. And unfortunately, the consequences of that pushback is landing on extremely vulnerable populations. So I'm definitely concerned about that. So, I mean, what keeps you going through all of this? What what makes it worth it for you? Honestly, just chasing my dream. Like I couldn't see any other way. Like, I mean, as soon as the Olympics was announced, I kind of, you know, I had to really like look into my soul and decide like, is this the right thing to do? And is this what I want to do? And the answer that I came up with is like, 
if there's a reason for me being on this planet, this is it. It feels like my life's purpose to do this work and fight through it all. When I was first getting into sports as a kid, I didn't see a future for myself. And I want to show the next generation that they do have a future and being whoever they want to be when they grow up. Chelsea Wolf is a freestyle BMX rider and an alternate for Team USA at the Tokyo Olympics. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks for having me on. I've also been joined by Ashlyn Johnson, the founder of the Inclusion Playbook. Thanks, Ashland. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was produced by Karen Given. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to get notified of new episodes out each week. This special from Karen Given is a part of our June digital issue, Beyond the Binary in Sport, filled with articles and stories exploring the spectra of sex, gender, and sexuality in sport. You can find the issue out now at globalsportmatters.com. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of marketing and communications is Crisal Valencia. Our digital communications specialist is Brendan Clean. Our events and programs manager is me, Kendall Jones. And our marketing and event assistants are Natalie Skegan, Kate Nelson, and Aiden Corrales. Find and follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS.